Well, good morning again, everybody. Thank you, Dylan and team, for leading us in worship music this morning. If you're new with us, thank you for being here. We're really glad you're here. We love you, and the Lord loves you, and I hope you know that this morning. Um, if you brought a Bible with you, please open up to Matthew 27, verse 27 with me. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll put it on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, let us know. We'd love to hook you up with one. Matthew 27, 27. You know, we are, we are very blessed to have the Bible in the English language. Um, if you ever want to learn about what it took to get the Bible into the English language, you should read a little of church history. Many people died, many people were burned at the stake so that we could have the Bible uh, in our language. Did you know that at least 1.5 billion people around the world do not have the Bible in their language? Pretty remarkable, considering the Bible is the, the most widely published book in the world. So we must never take the Bible for granted, and the, the Lord declares that his Bible, his word, is, is totally true. He says that it is without error, and he says that it will stand forever. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And so, if this is God's word, then we want to read God's word this morning. And specifically, I want us to take a look at uh, the ancient testimony written by a man named Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus, and he was also an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And he wrote down this account after uh, he witnessed Jesus' resurrection so that people everywhere not just in that generation, but in all future generations, would believe that Jesus is God. He wrote it so that people from all nations would turn to God and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, for eternal uh, salvation uh, from hell, and for eternal friendship with God. And so in today's passage, we're going to look at Matthew, and, and Matthew takes us back about 2,000 years ago, um, he takes us back to the day when Jesus was, he was illegally arrested at nighttime, and then he was falsely accused in a court of law, and then he was condemned to death by crucifixion, even though the, the judges, Pontius Pilate, knew he wasn't guilty. He told the crowd, this man isn't guilty of anything, but he was afraid of the crowds, and so the crowd yelled, crucify him, crucify him, and so he gave in to the crowd, and the crowd said, let the blood of Jesus be on our heads. And so, let's read Matthew's account of Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? Starting in Matthew 27, verse 27. I'm going to read a chunk here, quite a bit of a chunk of Scripture, because that's what you and I need this morning. We need to hear from God. So, Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. That was about 120 men. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of... Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gathered, or they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, then come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Well, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the, so this is Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, 
Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's end there. When I was reading this passage a while back, there was one verse that really stood out to me. Matthew 28, verse 8. And it describes the emotions of the women as they left the empty tomb. Okay, let me read it again. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Okay, so, so when the women left the empty tomb of Jesus, they were overcome by two very different emotions. Fear and great joy. That's a bizarre combination of feelings, okay? Being very afraid, scared, and at the same time being full of joy. Why were these women full of fear and at the same time full of joy? That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about why that matters to you and me today. And I want to talk about each emotion one at a time. First of all, why did Jesus' resurrection fill the women with fear? The women were filled with fear because Jesus' resurrection dramatically displayed the power of God. Hear that? They were filled with fear because Jesus' resurrection dramatically displayed the power of God. In the Bible, God tells us that there is only one God and that he exists eternally in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, who we call Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in deity and they're equal in power. God is the creator of everything. And that means that nothing that exists was not created by God. And so what that means is God is in control. He's sovereign over every atom in the universe. No power can overcome God. No power can overthrow God since all power comes from God and is sustained by God, okay? Exodus 15, 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And Psalm 21, 13 says, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We sing and praise your power. And so the women at the empty tomb of Jesus were filled with fear because Jesus' resurrection displayed God's great power to them. And he displays his power here in at least four ways. First of all, in verse 2, God displays his power over nature. Verse 2 says, Behold, 
which means check this out. That's what that means. There was a great earthquake when the stone was rolled away from the tomb. And the earth didn't quake because the giant stone uh, shaked the ground as it was rolled away. That's not what he's talking about. The earth quaked because God made the earthquake as he was unveiling the most pivotal and awesome event in human history, the resurrection of God's son, Jesus Christ. That was an event worthy of an earthquake. Remember, this was the second earthquake we we read about that God caused in Jerusalem that week. Just a few days later, immediately after Jesus took his last breath on the cross, there was an earthquake. And the giant 60-foot curtain in the temple of the Jews tore in half. This temple separated people from God. It symbolized people can now access God through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the earthquake made the rocks split in half and Then many dead people who were buried in tombs came back to life. They left their tombs and appeared to many people in Jerusalem. I don't know about you, that would make me a little fearful, okay? Great Aunt Edna's having dinner with us all of a sudden. That's kind of scary. Um, When God made the earth quake when Jesus died on the cross, even the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus were awestruck, and they declared, Truly, this was the Son of God. God has all power over nature. The second way that God displays his his fear-inducing power at the tomb of Jesus is by commanding powerful angels to do his will. Verses 2 to 3 say that the earthquake at Jesus' tomb was accompanied by the appearance of a royal angel who had descended from heaven to roll back the stone at Jesus' tomb, and as the angel sat on top of the stone, it says his clothes were as white as snow, and his body was flashing like lightning. Okay? Now, whenever angels appear to people in the Bible, almost always the first words out of the angel's mouths are, do not be afraid. Right? They know that's how people are going to respond. Don't freak out. That's, the, that's how they have to start their conversations. Because almost always, the mere sight of angels causes humans to tremble. It causes them to shake. It causes their knees to knock with fear. And so this is why the angel tells the women here, verse 5, do not be afraid. And I want you to see that this awesome-looking angel, this fear-inducing angel, is not this rogue spiritual being who does whatever he wants in the universe. This awesome angel bows to one who is infinitely more awesome, the Lord Jesus himself. This is why verse 2 says that this angel was an angel of the Lord. And he's just one of a multitude of heavenly hosts who answer to the Lord. Remember a few days before this when Jesus was being arrested... The apostle Peter tried to protect Jesus by swinging his sword at Jesus' arresters. And and Jesus told Peter, put your sword down. Jesus said, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could say one word and have 72,000 angels by my side to obliterate these people. 72,000. And as, as God, Jesus has all power over thousands and thousands of awesomely powerful angels. And the sight of just one of those angels makes even the bravest of men, as we see in this passage, tremble and faint. 
God has all power over angels. And in addition to displaying his power over nature and angels at the, at the tomb, God thirdly displays his power over humans here. This group of Roman soldiers who had been stationed at Jesus' tomb, uh, their job was to make sure that nobody stole Jesus' dead body. And on Sunday morning when God made the earthquake and he sent one of his angels to open the tomb, these vicious Roman soldiers could only tremble at the sight of this one angel. And, and then they essentially, it says they were like dead men. They, they fainted, they went unconscious, whatever. They were, it was, it was you know, he, the angel just KO'd them. Psalm 2 says that God sits in heaven and laughs at the plans of the wicked who think that they can overpower God or outsmart God. That the power and plans of men are impotent and futile when they stand in opposition to the God of the universe. And neither the Jews nor the Romans could keep the tomb of Jesus closed. They couldn't keep it closed on that Sunday morning because it was God's will to show the whole world that his son Jesus was alive again. And, and the soldiers in this passage and the women in this passage tremble at the power of God. He is totally in power over people. And the fourth way that God displays his power at Jesus' tomb is by defeating death itself. Okay? Only three days earlier, the Romans mercilessly tortured Jesus. Uh, Jesus' physical body had been punched, whipped, flogged, beaten over the head with rods by a hundred soldiers. His head was stuck with thorns. He was forced to carry his own cross to his execution place. And there he was pierced with nails through his hands and feet and eventually stabbed in the heart with a spear after he died. Okay, this all happened in the presence of many eyewitnesses and there was zero doubt among them that Jesus was dead. And because it was so obvious that Jesus was dead, the, the Roman governor Pilate allowed Jesus' body to be given to a rich disciple of Jesus named Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph used the remaining hours of sunlight on that Friday to begin to wrap Jesus' body in a clean linen shroud while it says some of the women watched. And Joseph had to stop preparing Jesus' body that Friday night because the Sabbath started. And that is why the women come back Sunday morning with spices to finish anointing Jesus' body, to finish preparing it for burial. But instead of seeing Jesus' dead body at the tomb, the women see the angel of the Lord who says, Jesus isn't here. He's risen. Go tell everybody. And in that encounter, these women were the first to witness the greatest miracle in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, who by the power of God died a real death and then showed his power over death by rising from the dead. Okay? No wonder the women were full of fear. Right? Within just a few minutes, they saw God display his supreme power over nature and earthquakes. Uh, he displayed his power over these jaw-dropping angels who answer to Jesus. Uh, they saw Jesus um, show his power over strong Roman soldiers who faint at the sight of just one of the Lord's soldiers. And he showed his power over death itself in his own resurrection. This is why Matthew 28.8 says that the women were afraid when they left the tomb. They had experienced the vast power of the living God 
and they lived to tell about it. Did you know that it is not a bad thing to fear God? In fact, one of our greatest problems is that we don't fear God enough. In the Bible, the book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so if we want to be wise, if we want to experience blessing now and forever, then we must start by fearing our maker, by fearing the Lord. We fear the Lord because we acknowledge him and deeply respect him as the all-powerful creator, as the ruler over everything in the known universe, which we can see, and in the unknown universe, which we can't see. We, we believe that God rules over everything that we can see. He rules over people and animals and Mount Baker and Mount Pilchuck and Mount Rainier, and he, he rules over the oceans, and we believe that God also rules over thing that we, everything we can't see. God says there is more to creation than what you human beings can scientifically and empirically see with your eyes. He says there are angels, there are demons, there is a place called heaven, there is a place called hell. And we fear the Lord because we believe that it's only by his power and his choice that we are alive right now. Our hearts are beating right now. Our brain neurons are firing right now because it's the Lord's will. And at some point when the Lord wills it, it's gonna stop. Our hearts will stop beating. Our brain neurons we'll stop firing and we're just gonna go back to the dust where we came from physically. And at that point, our spirits, because we're made with a body and we're made with a soul, at that point, our spirits will immediately be in the presence of Jesus where we will see him face to face. And we fear the Lord because this tells us we are tiny, right? That's one of the great things we, we can learn from space exploration. We are tiny. And God is massive. The universe is nothing compared to God. He could wipe out you and me and all of planet Earth in a nanosecond without even breaking a sweat. We are totally dependent on God, both for our physical life and for our spiritual life. We fear the Lord also because we know what he is capable of. He is the greatest power in the known universe all angels, all demons, all governments, all authorities, all, it talks, the Bible talks about spiritual authorities and rulers that we can't even see. All of these authorities answer to Jesus. Psalm 89 says, in the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. That's an awesome verse. And Hebrews 9.27 says that all of us must give an account of ourselves to our maker one day, to Jesus. Now think about that. Think about what we're seeing in this passage. If one angel of the Lord causes the strongest of men to tremble and faint, then how in the world will we ever be able to stand before the glorious creator of all the angels? It can only be by God's power that he will sustain us and empower us to be in his presence without being obliterated. And he could do that, because he's God. 
And we fear the Lord because he is, what he says, eternally set apart. He's holy. It's this, this word that means there's everything, there's all of this, everything we see, everything even that we imagine. And then there's God. He's in his own category. That means, that's what it means that he is he's holy. He's righteous. He has no evil in him. He's perfect. And, and so we fear the Lord because we see the contrast between who he is and who we are, if we're honest, that I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm actually sinful. I do things, I disobey God. I, I've done wicked things in my life. That should cause me to be afraid. And we fear the Lord because he says that the sin has a terrible effect, that it is so serious that the just punishment for our sin is actually eternal destruction, that our souls would eternally be destroyed and eternally suffer after this life. Left to ourselves, the Bible says we are hopeless and we are helpless. If you don't, if you don't fear the Lord, this is what the Lord calls you. And I think he says this lovingly. He calls you a fool. Psalm 92, five to seven says, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. So if you do not acknowledge God, if you are confident in yourself, if you think you're all that, if you are self-righteous in the presence of the living God, you are a fool. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It means that we need to admit that as the one who made us, God has all power over nature and over angels and over people and over death itself. Fear of the Lord is a very good thing when we define it correctly. And the women at the tomb were filled with fear at the power of God. And we are fools if we don't fear God too. Now remember, the question we're asking this morning is, how could these women at Jesus' empty tomb be filled with great fear and great joy at the same time? We've talked about fear. Okay? The women were filled with fear because Jesus' resurrection dramatically displayed the power of God. And at the same time, the women were filled with great joy because of the gospel or the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Right? This passage gives us at least four reasons why the women at Jesus' tomb were filled with joy because of this great news. First, in Matthew 28, 5-6, the angel of the Lord says, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. So the angel here confirms that Jesus really died. He says Jesus was crucified, okay? Why is that important? There are a lot of <clears throat> false religions out there that teach that Jesus didn't really die. That he somehow faked his own death. That when he was beat to a pulp, he faked it, okay? That's not what the eyewitnesses in the Bible and outside of the Bible say. They say Jesus actually died. But then the angel says, he's not here. Or in other words, he's not dead. Yes, he was crucified. Yes, he was killed. Yes, he was dead. Yes, he was buried on Friday. But he's no longer dead. 
the angel is saying this, that death did not have the last word for Jesus, okay? Jesus is God. Jesus is greater than death. And so he's saying if you're expecting to find Jesus here where the dead are, then you're going to be looking forever because Jesus is alive. He's no longer dead. And this news was, was cause for great joy because these women loved Jesus. They adored Jesus. They had faithfully followed Jesus everywhere he went for several years. They'd served him. They'd stayed faithful to him, even when the men disciples did not stay faithful to him. They were with Jesus in his final moments as he hung upon the cross. And these angels' words were wonderful news because it meant that their friend, their rabbi, their Lord, was not dead. And at the same time, when we read the other gospel accounts, we know that the women were disoriented and cast down at the same time because they didn't know where his body was, right? And so truly, the, the idea of Jesus being alive was too much for them at that time. They were in shock. What they really wanted was to see the body. And so until the women actually saw Jesus in verse 10, they were understandably overwhelmed by a variety of emotions. The second reason the women were filled with great joy is because the angel of the Lord tells them in verse 6, Jesus has risen, right? He's risen. So not only was Jesus not dead, but he was actually alive and he was living gloriously, okay? Jesus had been physically restored, Completely by the power of God. So listen, Jesus was not alive in the sense that he was still in the tomb, laying down, grimacing in pain because of the dozens of lashes on his back, grimacing at the stab wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. No, Jesus was risen. Dead men don't get up. Men who are beat to a pulp don't get up. You're in ICU for six months if you live. Jesus was alive in glory. And in miraculous fullness of health, Jesus rose. He rose from the grave. And he was on the move. He was on the move, it says. This was the physical reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And at the same time that this physical reality of his resurrection was happening, there was a corresponding spiritual reality uh, to his resurrection that was even more breathtaking. Writing to Christians, the apostle Peter would later write in 1 Peter 2, 24, he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Jesus was not crucified on a cross because he was powerless to defend himself. Jesus was crucified because that was his whole mission. That's why he came. Jesus left heaven and came to earth in order to die. Why would he do that? Well, he did that so that you and I might know the Lord and love the Lord and be saved from the destruction we brought upon ourselves. The punishment for each of our sins against God is eternal death, which we must suffer after this life on earth. However, this is, this is amazing, okay? We have to try to, in our finite minds, we have to try to see this idea of infinity, that God, however, knew and loved his people even before he created them. How do you know somebody before they're created? Not something you and I can do. 
Only God can do that. And before creating the world, the Bible says that he foresaw all of the evil things that humanity would do. And so before the creation of the world, he predetermined to send himself to earth to die on a cross one day and to suffer the eternal punishment for his church so that they would never have to. In our bodies, we humans bear our sins against God. Our sins declare us guilty before God day and night. And so Jesus came to take away these sins from us so that they might not declare us guilty anymore. God is just. He doesn't just say, well, you're forgiven, there's no punishment. No, he says someone has to be punished. Either you're gonna be punished or I'm gonna be punished for you. Will you trust in me? When Jesus was nailed to the cross, the Bible says that this is when he took our sin out of us, for those who trust in him, that he put it into himself. He became our sins. He bore our sins. And as he hung on the cross with our sin in him, Jesus suffered the wrath of God toward our sin. What sin of Jesus' did he suffer for? None. He didn't have sin. He suffered for our sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, this is what it means, the sin that he bore that was in him, it died with him. It went to the grave with him. Our condemnation went to the grave with Jesus. He has suffered and died for all of the present, past, and future sins of those who trust in him. He has replaced our sin in us with his own righteousness so that, this is incredible, it says in the scripture that we who are in Christ are now declared to be the righteousness of God. We're righteous in God's sight. That's the only way we can know him and be in his presence. And so the wicked things that you and I have done must be punished by God who is more good than we can comprehend. And so either we turn to Jesus and trust in the punishment he suffered for us on the cross or our sins remain on us. They remain on our head and we will suffer for them forever after this life. This is, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He came to tell us the truth because he loves us. He says, there is no other sin-bearing savior or God than me. Trust in me and be saved from your sin, from your bondage to Satan, from your future death and from an eternity of hell. This is God speaking to you. When God, and this is so cool, when God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, what was the state of everybody's mind at that point when he was dead? Oh, he was a phony. <coughs> he, he, was, he was a fake. He couldn't, he couldn't help himself on the cross. He, was, he wasn't who he said he was. He was just a blasphemer. He was just like the two robbers on the, on the cross that he died next to. No. This is what God the Father did for his son when Jesus rose from the dead. The Father shut up every person and every spirit who spoke evil of Jesus. The Father declared to us, the world, that the world's judgment about Jesus was wrong. Our courts were wrong. Jesus is not guilty. Jesus is righteous. He's not a blasphemer. He is God. And Jesus is no longer now the victim at the hands of men 
Jesus is the victor. He is the defeater of death. And he is the judge. He said, all judgment has been given to me. And the eternal judge he is of everyone who judged him. This is cause for great joy for those who know and trust in Jesus. Because the judge is the one who justified us. We don't have to be afraid of condemnation. We know the judge, and he loves us. And we accepted his punishment for us. You can't say that if you don't know Jesus. But he wants you to know him. The third reason the women were filled with great joy at Jesus' tomb is because the angel of the Lord told them in verse 6, Jesus has risen just as he said. Just as he said. So several times during Jesus' ministry, he said that he would die and rise again. And the angel of the Lord here essentially tells the women, Jesus said he would rise again, so that's what Jesus did. Oh, and by the way, everything else Jesus said he would do, he's going to do. That is great news for those of us who love Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus proves that we can tr totally trust everything that Jesus said. And because Jesus is God, because scripture is God-breathed, we can totally trust all of God's promises in the Bible. And Jesus made some spectacular promises. Let me read you just a few from just one book, just some of the amazing promises Jesus made about himself and about us in the Gospel of John alone. In John 2, 19 to 22, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In John 3.16, Jesus promised, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, what, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In John 6.35 and 40, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 8, 31 to 32 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. John eleven twenty five 25 says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But we could go on and on reading the promises of Jesus. I encourage you to open up a Bible and read for yourself. The promises of Jesus are like honey on the tongues of everyone who trusts in him because this, because we know those aren't empty promises. Those promises were purchased for us by Jesus' blood on the tree. Those are ours now in Jesus. 
And so they're very precious to us. At his empty tomb, Jesus proved that he is always true to his word. He rose from the dead just like he had promised. And the fourth and final reason the women were filled with great joy is because the angel of the Lord tells them in verse 7, you will see him again. You'll see him again. Now, what a wonderful promise to these women who loved Jesus. And the the women were filled with great joy, not only because Jesus was not dead, uh, not only because Jesus rose from the grave with power, not only because Jesus proved that his promises are trustworthy, but they were filled with joy because they were going to see him again. And that's exactly what happened soon after that when Jesus appeared to the women. We read that they grabbed onto his feet and they just worshiped him with joy. And then he reassured them, not to be afraid, but to go spread the good news of his resurrection to everybody else. This is what I love about Jesus appearing to us again. Jesus didn't die for our sins so that he could clean up our mess and then be done with us forever. Jesus rose from the grave so that we might see him again. He loves us. He wants us to see him. And he created you and me because... He wants to share the fullness of the joy that's in himself with us. He wants us to have a living friendship with him. He wants us to experience the freedom and joy of knowing him. Eternal life, this is how Jesus defined it real briefly. He said, this is eternal life that they know you, God. Eternal life is about knowing God, being friends with God. And Jesus' promises in scripture uh, that... uh, He says we will see him again when our lives on earth end, okay? Our lives on earth are going to end in one of two ways. First, uh, either our bodies will die someday and our spirits will immediately go to Jesus for judgment, or Jesus says he's going to return to earth again and we will meet him face to face for judgment at that time. Those are the two options. And and Jesus says that the moment that we meet him face to face— it's either going to be the most glorious moment we've ever known or it's going to be the most tragic moment we've ever known. For everyone who trusted in Jesus on earth for the forgiveness of their sins and for life with God, then seeing Jesus is going to be awesome because we know that we won't be punished for our sin because Jesus was already punished for our sin. And so we don't have to live our lives on earth in fear of that future judgment. In fear of what's going to happen when we die. When believers see Jesus, it's going to be the beginning of the greatest joy they've ever known. Wow. But for everybody, this is what Jesus says. For everyone who rejected him on, in earth and did not turn away from their sin and trust in him for forgiveness and eternal life, seeing Jesus is going to be tragic. They will see that they were fools all along because they never feared Jesus. They they never turned to the Savior who loves them. They never trusted in him. And so Jesus will rightly sentence them to an eternity of suffering in hell because they rejected the one who could save them. And I encourage you, if you've never read that, you need to read Matthew 25 so you can read Jesus' description of what that day will be like. Don't be a fool. This is what God says. Don't be a fool. Don't mock God. Don't be self-righteous. Humble yourself today before the Lord and ask God to save you from your sin. 
believe, if you believe that Jesus is God, if you believe that he rose again, then ask him to be your savior. Trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross and in his resurrection, and he will save you. And I challenge you, if you're not ready to do that today, what do you do with your sin? What's your plan for getting rid of it? Every religion in the world wrestles with the problem of sin. Every religion has a different answer. Only Christianity says that God suffers the sin for us because we can't get rid of it on ourselves, by ourselves. And I encourage you to trust in the Lord today. Please let us know on a connection card if you're trusting in Jesus. We want to celebrate with you. And just like those women at the tomb who love Jesus, we want to fear the Lord and his great power over everything. And at the same time, we who trust in Jesus do not have to live in fear of God's condemnation anymore because Jesus was condemned in our place. Rather, the greater that we fear the Lord, the greater that our joy will be in the Lord because this awesome God is on our side. If you are in Christ, you're on his team. The one with all the power is out to bless you now and forever as he glorifies his own name for eternity. May we enjoy daily friendship with the Lord, with this resurrected Jesus who loves us, and may we seek to live for the glory of his name until we meet him face to face. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we exalt your name in this place. We declare that you are God. You're the resurrected Lord. We thank you for the eyewitness testimonies that you've given us that <clears throat> you wrote down as the Holy Spirit filled them. Thank you that we have the Bible in our own language you've preserved so that we can hear your self-revelation and know the truth. God, your salvation is so awesome. It's too, it really is too big for us to comprehend. But we thank you, God. We, we just want to trust you like children and say, I believe you, God. I believe that I can't get rid of my problems on my own. I need you to do it for me. I can't get my life together on my, my own. I can't get my, my sin and guilt and shame. I can't get rid of that on my own. I need someone bigger than me. I need my maker to come in and save me. And so, Jesus, we want to turn to you today and say you are the Savior. You are the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life. Without you, we can do nothing. May we turn to you and trust you today and enjoy life with you forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.